Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Carol Francis, Make Life Happen, and today, definitely, about making life happen regardless of the circumstances that face you, regardless of the situations that come into your life unplanned and the power you have to deal with the life you have to plan. And who better to bring that information to us but Joseph Gennaro, Gennaro, Joseph P. Gennaro, is that correct? Correct me if you are an actor and author? Yes, it is, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. Very good to be here, Warden. There. <laughs> you have so much to teach us and I have I've 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 watched you during the last year grow uh grow in so many different ways, listen to interview interview oh my goodness, I'm studying today, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> listening to just different interviews. And I, I, I think I want to start with your book that's coming out in January, is that right? Yes. Yep. Uh, right. good Lord willing. Oh good. Okay, and and you know what? I hear a little bit of echo. I think you might have me. You need to put me on a, a earphones. Okay, let me just. I let's turn that down. How's that? <laughs> Is that better? I I I, I will see. Perfect. Oh, sounds okay. You can hear. Can you hear me okay. all right? Oh yes. Sorry yep, about that. Absolutely. Everybody, a little technical. Uh-huh. We just need to have no feedback whatsoever. This book is called Arrested Youth by Joseph yes. T. Gennaro. Listen to the beginning of this. I've never been more scared in my life. Not in the physical sense, like when your car is headed straight toward a tree. No, this fear is far worse, the fear of the unknown, the mental anguish, the dread that something horrible has happened and that things are only going to get exponentially worse in life-altering ways. I have lost control. I cannot undo the events of this night, nor can I undo the trials of the last four months. Joseph, you had me in the first paragraph. I did not want to put this book down. What is this? What that begins the book, and the book continues to be a journey through life that both throws me into my teenage years and then to the horrors of life that people face. The inspiration is your life, but tell, tell me more about why you decided to write this book. It, Carol, it actually started out of, um, I was in a rather dark place relationship-wise um, back in 2010. And in a, man, in a manner of, of self-reflection, I thought, well, let me, let me journal and let me write out the past serious relationships I've had just to see if it was my fault, are there things I should have seen before I got involved, and just, just try to analyze where I went wrong over, over the years. Um, relationships have, have always been a challenge of sorts. Um, so I started writing and chronicling the major events in my life, and circumstances came about where another author, author friend of mine saw my writing and gave it to her agent who became very interested. Um, as I went along and I kept sending her my work, um, I got to this particular chapter which details my high school romance, basically. Um, and the chapter kept growing and growing where all the others were about 40 pages, 20 to 40 pages. I got to 80 and I wasn't even halfway there because it was a rather cumulus um, time. And so I, I sent it off to several people, and their opinion was, keep going with this and turn this into a book first, and we'll go back to do as I say, not as I did at, at another time. And that's, that's how we arrived here. Beautiful. I'm so glad you wrote your – well, how did you learn to write? What, what was your well, – you know. Over over the years, over the last um, – well, I could say it started out in school, both in high school and in college. Um, I was very, very fortunate – have some very gifted teachers and professors um, who really ignited ignited that passion in me. Um, coupled with that, over the years, I've done so much writing. I've written grants. I've written position papers, editorial pieces, things of that nature, um, all very, very dry stuff, um, all very dry materials. Uh, when I started writing, writing this work, um, I think both because it was personal and because it had been bottled up so long, 
it just flowed. It just came chapter after chapter. In fact, actually, I had to, um, once I finished the first draft, I was instructed to delete or edit out about 120 pages. <laughs> That's the way it goes. <laughs> right. Well, I would recommend everybody to embrace this book, enjoy this book, learn from this book. And what what do you think are the lessons that this book embodies? Because you're talking about your life as a lesson, and we're going to go there even deeper. But what what are the life lessons this book embodies? Um, I think on the on the lighter side, um, it's the coming of age tale and a, a retrospective history of what life was like for teens back in the 70s. Um, we talk about A-track tape players. Um, we talk about the differences between then and now, um, where now you know, we have cell phone communications, texting, computers, everything else. Back then, you could get away with a lot more things because we weren't as connected then. Um, on, the, on the deeper side, it gets into the angst that many teens go through, um, both in their relationships and in their family relationships as well. Um, and unfortunately, it also goes into a darker side where it goes into um, physical abuse by family members, um, and also how it was dealt with differently then as compared to hopefully things are a little bit better now. Um, it's not entirely prevented or preventable, uh, but hopefully people are more aware of the things that can happen and can take um, steps to, to intervene before things get out of hand. That would be the hope. That would be the, the medicinal hope for it. Okay, yes. so now, Dylan, talk as a man about watching your girlfriend being abused. I'm getting that feedback again. You're going to have to turn me all the way off. <laughs> I'll tell you, it. it um, what I discovered later, about 15 years later, um, ever since I would, ever since I was a child, if I saw abuse um, on TV, if I saw people in, in public getting in arguments or especially a physical fight, a man versus a woman, um, I would explode. I would go absolutely inside. I would go absolutely red with rage. And I, I actually on several several events in my teens, I actually attempted to intervene um, on, on several fights where, where a man might be hitting a woman or something like that. But I can never put my finger on why, why I would have such a visceral, such a deep, deep, reaction, response to, to such behavior. And what I found out is I was adopted when I was about three and a half years old. And prior to that time, I'd lived with uh, both my biological father and mother um, who had divorced. And at that time, um, I was up for adoption. And prior to that time, I had seen abuse take place within my own home. Um, both of them were not very nice at the time uh, to each other. And I guess... That's, I guess that's where my first experience of seeing a woman being abused or hit or whatever uh, first came about. Um, so I carried this inside me all these years, not knowing why. And this one particular day on a Friday, uh, my girlfriend, the first love of my life, um, had come to school and had been covered with bruises. Beautiful, fair-skinned young, young woman, absolute doll an honor student, and just a, a all-around good person, um, came in. She had a black eye, welts on her face and on her neck. And I saw this, and I, I went ballistic. I, I didn't know what to do. Um, mm. And so that, that, that's how it began. Well, then what did you do? What, what, did, what were you compelled to do after that? Um, at that point, a, a teacher intervened. And um, as part of her legal mandate, she did have to call the police and notify them of what, what had happened. Um, I thought, oh, great, you know, the cops are getting involved. This will never happen again. They'll, they'll make sure, you know, this never happens. Unfortunately, um, getting the police involvement actually made things worse. Because um, at the time, mm -hmm. the, the family was kind of prominent in town and was so embarrassed and so enraged that, their personal business was made public, um, and a couple other events occurred that the following Sunday night, it happened once again where um, Debbie had, had mm -hmm. been abused again, again by family members. Um, so when she mm -hmm. came to school and actually hid from me because she didn't want me seeing it again, um, when I did find her, 
we figured, well, we went to the cops, we went to a teacher, we did everything we thought we were supposed to do, and no one can protect us. And oh, wow. so, so thinking the fight versus flight, I couldn't fight back. So my only reaction was to be able to protect her was to remove her from town. And so we, we bolted from Guilford, Connecticut, and drove up and disappeared into Boston for, uh, for four or five months. Um, and that's actually where the book begins. Yes. Yeah. yeah it, it, the, the beginning chronicles are, are getting together in the joys of first love and all, all that that can bring. And then this climatic change occurs and the remaining book is, is our struggling to try and be adults. Um, yeah. Living as adults, as very immature kids who, who were not ready for it at all. Yeah, in fact, you were just a couple of months from graduation, you were saying. Yes, yep, exactly. We um, It occurred about two months before graduation, so we missed graduation, we missed the senior prom, and all the fun things that could go along with it, and instead, uh, we both ended up working full-time and no money, and it, it, we weren't ready in, in any, any sense of the word. Hmm. You know, you had dated her for a long time, and I was uh, I was surprised that it took all the way to the senior year for an event to occur. Had there not been smaller events or or red flags that helped you know that or was nothing occurring at that time? Um, As far as a physical standpoint, no. Um, But prior to that point, from the very first day I met her parents, they couldn't stand me. Um, And I I don't think it was anything, hopefully, or, or anything directly related to my personality. But I think anyone... Um, from the outside, they sensed as a threat um, to their daughter and to their daughter's well-being as far as continuing on to college and education is the first priority and anything that would dissuade her from doing that um, would, was a threat to them. So from, from the very first day I met, they, they didn't care for me whatsoever. Um, as we went along, they kept restricting our activities more and more to the, to the point where by senior year, we were only allowed to see each other no, because that we had to do, uh, you know, do everything else. Um, so the, the noose got very, very tight um, relatively quickly. Wow. So, so early in your life, after age three, you were exposed to abuse, and then your life got tamer, more doable. Uh, you described the wonderful conversations, the compatibility between your parents your adopting parents, and then once again you're introduced into this abusive frame work and, and and your life had to take on a heroic, overwhelm position. Where did you go from there? How, what, how did you learn to gird up? Um, I, I don't think we had a choice. Um, at the time I didn't see it, and I'm not sure I still do, but at the time I didn't see it as, as heroic so much as we have to do something. I have to do something and, you know, get her out of there. Um, I, I just felt we did what we had to do to, in order to survive. And in order, the biggest thing I wanted to do was prevent Debbie from experiencing any more pain, especially pain at the hands of, of family members. Um, and that, that's what boiled down to. Um, in hindsight, I'm not sure it was the wisest decision. I don't know what the alternative would have been. Um, but the same token, we did what we thought we had to do. What do you wish your parents had done so that parents could listen to this and say, oh, my goodness, am I, is my teen going through something like this? What do you wish your parents had been able to do or had done or understood? Um, unfortunately, I myself didn't give them very much of a chance to do anything. Um, I, did, I did explain to them what, what happened the very first time. Um, the second time it occurred from the moment I saw Debbie that morning, um, I shifted into the flight mode. And everything I did, I snuck in my house, got some clothes out. I didn't tell my parents anything about the second event. And I took off. I, In my mind, I wish I had been more open about it. I don't know what solutions they might have been able to provide. But one regret I do have, and I actually apologized to them while I was writing the book, um, was that I, I literally ran away and worried the heck out of them for four or five months because no one whatsoever, we made sure no one whatsoever knew where, where we were. Um, mm. As far as what parents could do, yeah, I, think what, I think what sometimes occurs 
is parents sometimes won't take events seriously or won't see things as seriously as their as their teenager will. Um, mm-hmm. Understandably, because teenagers have tendency sometimes of overreacting or dramatizing things. Um, so I guess I guess the biggest biggest thing I would say is just listen, listen and analyze. And if something doesn't sound right, or especially if your child seems very very afraid, that's the time where you need to listen and can't just discount it as oh he's just overreacting again or whatever the case may be. Okay, so parents are going to wonder if their teenager is exposed to drugs and alcohol or, or, or sex that's going to lead to pregnancy. But very few times do I hear parents saying, my child is being exposed to abuse from another family or my child's being exposed to other individuals who are being abused. How do I equip my child? And truly that's what we're saying is parents wake up your child is interfacing with people who are definitely, definitely um, not in happy situations. They're going to be drawn to that. You became you became quite a character, though, quite an individual subsequent to that. And so tell us more about that in terms of your family, your next phase of life, your the events that changed your life again, yet again. If, if I can, if I could just go back to um, your, your previous comment about um, parents and kids and all that. Um, I think one of the, well, one one thing that struck me when, when I was doing my research for doing the book, um, one thing that struck me is how prevalent um, abuse against teenage girls is in, in this day and age by their boyfriends. Um, it was something I, I never even considered. I would never even think that that could occur. Um, but there's a large number and a growing number of young women who are being abused physically and emotionally by their boyfriends or significant well, others at a very young at a very young age. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot, what I've seen, and a lot of a lot of young women don't feel that they can do anything about it or they feel that they somehow deserve it. Um, I believe signs of, signs of abuse are things that parents need to look out for, but also at an early age, build up, build up your child's self-esteem so they know that things occurring like that Either emotional abuse, physical abuse, threatening, anything of that nature is not acceptable in in any shape or form. Um, right. And and have the have the child grow strong in themselves, so they know, hey, I don't have to take this. Right. Absolutely. None of it's acceptable. Not from parents. Not from boyfriends. Not from girlfriends. It's just not something that you tolerate in your life. Um, exactly. That intolerance, yes, that intolerance of, of emotional and physical violence. Let your self-esteem shine. Uh, stand up. But that's what you and your girlfriend were trying to do: stand up to <laughs> not only her family but a whole community that was that was uh, beholding of this family, which is not uncommon. Yes, yes. It's um, the the grandfather was a judge, and. Wow. Um, and the, the sons were um, were involved in uh, paramedics in town, and we're we're, we're good good people. Um, but like like you said, when when something like this occurs, um, who are they going to believe? Um, a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of yep, things. Exactly. But I understand. Even your family must have felt some of the the power of their presence in terms of going and, up against a family with that much reputation. It was a small yeah, community. And, Exactly, exactly, in a way that, and that was another regret I had that in in our leaving, um, the aftermath meant they had to go up, I don't know if they went up against these people, but had to be in ex- extremely uncomfortable um, situations with them as, as they attempted to find us. Have they shared with you the process that they had to go through in coming to terms with what had taken place and your fear, but once they did know, what was their process like? We we actually never really talked about it until I started do, doing the writing. Um, mm-hmm. And it started out with me sharing some of the writing with them here and there. And up to that point, I didn't realize it. Um, they had never really understood the reasons why we had taken off. Um, they, they thought it was more young teenagers rebelling, acting foolish, and, and just running. Um, and it was when they finally understood exactly the reasons that that brought me to to make that decision, they understood a lot more in depth what we went through. 
Um, and I think it helped them as well understand the type of person that, that I was and that I became. Hmm. Well, then what happens next in your life that becomes very life-changing to you? <laughs> just a bit, just a smidge. <laughs> um, in 1982, at the age of, I had just turned 22, a month after um, I had turned 22, 30 years ago, two weeks ago, actually, I was wow. working in a garage, my, my dad's garage of all things, and a car fell off a lift while I was oh standing, up on, standing up underneath it. And oh dear. The, car, the car fell six feet. Um, like I said, I was standing up underneath it, and it caught me and essentially broke me in half. Um, oh, the dear. Very, the very fortunate thing, I it missed my head. I had no head injuries. Um, the, extent, the extent of my injuries was a broken back at the T12 L1 level, uh, which okay. resulted in the partial spinal cord injury, and I broke my two front teeth. And that was it. Considering, considering what oh, happened, goodness. considering what happened and the severity of what could have happened, I count myself very lucky to be here, very lucky to be alive. Um, in a lot of instances where injuries like this occur or accidents like this occur, the outcome is a lot, much, much worse, uh, most usually fatal. Now, tell me, honestly, Joseph P. Genera, who is the author of Arrested Youth, tell me honestly, were you feeling that way at the time when you were recovering from this? Um, yes and no. I, rec- I recognize the severity of what happened and what could have happened. At the same token, being 22, essentially in the prime of my young masculine life, the change, the change was severe. Um, of course, it was severe. The one thing that, that really helped me move beyond it um, was six days after I was discharged from re- rehab, the rehab hospital. I was in a hospital a total of seven months altogether. Six days after I was released from the hospital, my baby daughter was born. Wow. So in, instead of being able to sit around the house and mutter, why me, why me, um, I had to instantly kick into gear, become a dad, and move on. Um, so essentially, I, actually, it was probably probably a good way for me to do so. I don't know that I would have lamented very long anyways because I'm, I'm just a very active person and... Yes, the chair has changed my life, but it doesn't define who I am. Um, and I've been able to go on, you know, I still drive, I do this, I do that. But I think having the responsibility of a child really necessitated me having to rejoin the real world very, very quickly. So this is six days after you returned to the house after how many months of recovery? I was in a acute care hospital for a little over a month. So that took me till right after New Year's, right after January, and then from January to June 10th, I was at Gaylord Rehabilitation Hospital, Wallingford, Connecticut, um, learning how to deal with my new but not improved body, um, learning how to drive and everything else, and got out June 10th, and my lovely daughter Jennifer was born June 16th. Wow. Now, did you ever tell your doctor, I will walk, I will be walking one day, or... Did you feel that oh. sense of determination? I, oh, no. I, I wouldn't call it discrimination. I believe that everyone who experiences an injury such as this does have that in mind. Um, I'm going to get out of this chair one day. And I've been through, I've gone through a lot of experimental um, treatments. I've been all over the country. I was out at, um, in L.A. where you are uh, I was at Wright State University in Ohio and also down in Miami Project down in Florida over the years, um, taking part in a lot of experimental programs in the hopes of either for myself or for future generations, taking part in the research to hopefully work on um, neurological rehabilitation to enable myself or others to get up. Um, it's, mm. it's far off in the future. Um, I was told five years after my injury, I was at a conference in Ohio, and we were told by a doctor at the time that in five years, he was going to get all of us up out of our chairs and walking again. Um, at this point, from what I can see with the research, it's probably going to be at least another 20 years, if not more. Wow. And and is that like a roller coaster emotionally? You, one day you're 
optimistic the next day? You're feeling like it's far off, too far off? Or do you no longer ride that wave? Um, I don't. I don't ride the wave per se, and that, that's probably a good way. Good way of saying it. I do believe that everyone should be optimistic, and every disability is different. And there are those who will be able to get up um, walking around. I, actually, I can stand up uh, with the aid of braces, but it's not it's not a practical way of mobility. Um, at this point, I'm you know, probably probably going back about 15 years, I did become a lot more realistic as far as what the future probably would hold for me. While I still pay attention to research and I still take part in various projects here and there, I was up at um, Spalding Rehabilitation in Boston last year taking part in a biofeedback program. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm seeing it more now as taking part in research that will help the next generation or future generations of spinal cord injured people. Um, yeah, quite quite a bit more realistic now than, than before. So you're a gift, a gift of the next generation. You know, okay, so I I broke my leg uh, about 17 weeks ago, and I had never had to crawl. <laughs> I never had to pull myself up only of my arms. I never had to encounter what it was like to go down to a curb and look at it as if it were the Grand Canyon or or decide <laughs> I need to go to the bathroom and I have it takes me 45 minutes to finally get that maneuvered and and uh so during this this cripples my cripples moment and I know that word's controversial too but in my in my cripples moment I happened to have uh been in a car waiting because that was about all I could do I couldn't get out of the car even very well I watched a gentleman maneuver his wheelchair, and it took him 20 minutes to get his wheelchair in the car, and I had, for the first time, had only a glimpse of understanding about how difficult this process was. I just felt such a applaud for this individual that, in this really racy Mustang, convertible, here he is pulling his wheelchair, tearing, dismantling it to fit into his car. You know, I'm getting that feedback again. So... I guess I'm trying to say, Joseph, is that help us understand how very difficult this is that every action at one point in your life has such deliberate effort behind it. Um, well, two things. One, if I, if I may intercede one moment, and if I could ask you, never, ever use that word again. Um, okay. It, I thought that was one of the questions I had for you. Yep. Um, there, there, there are there there have been so many. I actually wrote a, a editorial piece. Jars are uh, labels are for jars, not for people. Um, during the thirty years that I've been injured or since my accident, I was I started out I was crippled, I was handicapped, I was handicapable, and now the current phrase is a person with a disability um, because it puts a person first and disability second. Of of all those phrases and words, and none of them none of them did I have any input into saying, well, this is what I want to be called today. Um, actually, I would prefer just call me Joe. But in any case, the the one word that that stands out to a lot of people um, as just very very negative, as much as the N word does for the African American population, is the C word, the the word cripple. Um, the the connotation of or what it symbolizes goes back so many years and such an antiquated phrase um, that it just it just it just doesn't fit anymore. Um, disability person with a disability is, is so much friendlier or nicer. Um, and then, then we'll go back to your your gentleman in the Mustang and also my own experience. Um, I know from the outside it looks arduous. Um, in order to in order to get the chair into a car, I, I drive a car myself. I drive a truck. I have sports cars and things of that nature. Um, once a person has done it for quite a while, we don't even think about it anymore. Um, I'm I'm gratified that the person you saw was being into a Mustang because I I myself have always had fast cars or, or nice cars, and I there are times where I've actually got a car specifically because it was the most anti-wheelchair car I could imagine to have. Um, one, one, one of them was being a Corvette. I actually had a Corvette one time. And, okay. yes, it was difficult, difficult getting the chair in, but once the chair was in, it was so nice. Yeah, nice. the old blast down the road. 
Um, mm. If I can relate a funny story to that, and again, it has to do with, with people's perceptions. Um, I was, was in my in my vet one day, pulled up to a grocery store, doing handicap spot or the handicap parking spot, accessible parking spot, and this lovely older older woman, probably about 70 years old, came running up to my car and said, you can't park that car here, you can't park that car here. And I explained, you know, I have a wheelchair in the back, I have my accessible parking sticker hanging from the mirror, and she was in shock. She was in awe. She was, oh, my God, I didn't know you people could drive cars like this. Oh, I so went, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I laugh. I laugh because it, it's, especially depending on generation, things like that, people's perspective of people with disabilities can be so different. Um, in my parents' generation, the only person they really were exposed to was FDR, who went to great, great right. lengths to, to hide his disability because of the way society would perceive him to be as something less than or as a weaker person than he, he truly was. Um, mm-hmm. So as such, I, generational change, and I think that's one of the areas through my advocacy work in the 90s, and especially now with the acting, I'm hoping to help change it for the perception in that if I'm on TV acting in a role or whatever that does not involve me being in the wheelchair, I'm just there as another actor, it's becoming more and more normalized as far as seeing people as all of us as being equal, whether the person uses a wheelchair or a cane, has a breathing difficulty, whatever the case may be. It's a, it's, it's a, yeah, I'm listening to you coming at this point in your life after 30 years and a couple of weeks, you've evolved your identity uh, around this and because of this and despite this and um, I just know how difficult it was even for me to evolve my identity around the the various apparatus I had to go through just to be able to get mm-hmm. up the curve and, and it's like there's a total different change and people would treat differently, mostly wonderfully graciously oh, yeah. Others with all sorts of different curious looks, and I thought, boy, this is just a, a little broken leg. It's going to impair me for six months, and that's it. And so you've evolved your identity and your self confidence and your sense of I am powerfully me. Greet me as such. So, what was that evolution like for you, Joseph? Exactly, um, and that, that's the biggest thing. And I, I hopefully this is your message. I. I might helping across to the world and hopefully that the world is trying to accept from from all people, all people regardless of disability or whatever, is that always see the person first. And I I, I still get it. I still um there are certain people who will look at me or essentially look through me because all they see is the wheelchair first and then they just dismiss me as a person. And I'm, 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 I've gotten mm-hmm. used to that, and if that's the way they are, well, that's their problem. Um, so what, is that, what does that look like in a person's face? How can you, how do you see it, receive it? What's your body language? What are their gestures, their, their movements? What do you clue into that lets you know? That's um, where that's coming from. Wow. Well, um, I've seen it. To describe it, that could be a challenge. Let's see. Um, probably... <laughs> Joseph, while you're thinking about it for just a moment, the reason I'm saying it is that it'll help individuals uh, look at themselves and say, okay, well, am I conveying that? Am I communicating that? Uh, Am I I subconsciously or consciously trying to act in a way that does dismiss this person or makes this person feel dismissed? Um, And then we're going to contrast it to when you feel like this person greets you, the human being. So this is why I'm asking, what, what does it feel like or look like when a person does this to you? I think I think one way might be a quick glance and quickly looking looking away. Um, mm. Another way, I'll, I'll give you one example that, that is pretty striking, is parents, parents of, of young children. I absolutely lo- love young children. They are the most honest little beings that, that we have in our world. And there's, there are numerous times where a kid may come up to me and ask me a question or may ask his mom a question out loud. You know, Mom, why is that guy in a wheelchair or... Or what is that? Yeah, what is that guy sitting on? If they're too young to be able to figure it out, and there are two responses that I've seen, and one is very positive, where the parent might explain to the child right in front of me, or they may, or they'll let their child ask me the question, let, let me answer it, 
Then there are the other parents who are so mortified that their, their child is going to embarrass me, their child is going to embarrass themselves as the parents, where they'll grab the child's hand and just yank him away. Hmm. Um, and while I understand the embarrassment, what I believe that does to the child, it makes, makes them think that there's something to be afraid of. There's something to be afraid of that scary guy in the wheelchair because he's different. Whereas the parents that can let their child ask them the question and just answer them honestly or let their child ask me a question without them being embarrassed, I know I'm in a wheelchair. It's, it's not a surprise. Um, ask away. You know, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. not a problem. Now, do you think that, that that's because of your personality, you are an extrovert, you are used to being strong and, I mean, in your book you convey yourself as you're, you're, you're not inhibited at all. You're out, you're out there, you're friendly, you're gregarious, people know you in the school. Um, I mean, is that because of who you are? Are there other people in the wheelchairs that just really leave me alone, don't look at me, don't see me, don't talk to me? Is it well, an individual basis? I think, well, of course, of course every, every person is totally different. Um, I do believe that what disability might do is it may amplify those traits that a person had previously. I also believe that there are some, that there's a perception that there are some people with disabilities who are just, they're angry, angry people. Um, and I believe where that comes from is, especially in the first couple of years of disability when the person is finding themselves and figuring out what they can and can't do and adjusting to themselves and also to the world, as as differently as, as they were before, um, if they've had very negative experiences or very, let's say, very condescending people around them or working with them or have experienced blatant discrimination because of their disability, some do get angry and unfortunately tend to project it out onto the world. Um, I will admit my first year, maybe year and a half, maybe two years, there were times where I would needlessly and needlessly overreact to someone's offer to help or whatever and just flash them and say, I don't need any damn help or anything like that. That was Mm -hmm. a product of both my immaturity and also my immaturity as a person with a disability. Without recognizing that this person was just trying to be nice, just wanted to help. And people see that a lot in, in society and it's, 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 it's hard on both sides. I think it's hard from the person who's newly disabled, and it's also hard on a person who's just trying to be nice. Um, for the same token, I, what I've seen, I've worked with hundreds of people with disabilities, and what I've seen is it generally takes between a year to two years, maybe even more, for that person to figure themselves out and figure out how they are going to refit back into our society again, how they're going to refit into our world again. Um, and it's I'm not saying it's the ideal world, but it can be done. In fact, now it's so much easier for people with disabilities than it was 30 years ago, both in terms of accessibility, in terms of society and the way we're perceived, in terms of programs and laws against discrimination. It is a lot better than it was. It's not ideal, but it does take, it's, it takes a period of adjustment, and I think the severity of disability and the person's nature dictates how long it's going to be. In my case, it probably took, it took me, I'd say, about two years to really get get back into it um, as and become Joe again rather than mm-hmm. just being so aggravated at the world and at myself and, frust- and the frustration that built. And it, it, it does come in, I would say, hopefully 9.9, 9.9 out of 10 cases, it will come and the person can get their life back. Um, it may be a different life than what they, what they initially thought it would be, but life doesn't, end, doesn't, doesn't have to end just because of the disability. So what type of character is built inside of you? What characteristics, what type of strength of character or, or uh, what is built inside of you once you finally decide, I have, I'm moving on with life here. I've got, I'm going to wag this along with me uh, this is what I have to deal with. This is my thing. But I'm going to move forward with life. I'm going to be an actor, a writer, an advocate, a civil rights advocate. Uh, the, yeah. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. 
Yeah, what is the character? What are the characteristics that just bloomed in you? Boy, um, type A overachiever, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> really? I've, okay. I've, I, well, I, I, I do believe that's part of it, and I don't think that's really, I don't think it's related to the, um, to the disability so much as, as my own own personality. But I, I've never been one. I've never been content to not doing, either producing, doing something. Um, I've been an entrepreneur for years. I think I've only had one. I've only had two bosses in my lifetime. Other than that, either I ran my own business or. I was the director of an agency or or entity where I had a board of directors as a boss, but I was still the guy in charge. Um, I think that's just that's just inherent in me. I like I like creating. I like being out there and doing. Um, that's part of it. The other part is I'm, I'm fortunate in that life has given me certain opportunities where I can take I can take some risks. I can take some leaps that otherwise that I otherwise may not have been able to do so. An example um, was the writing. I was able to, because of the way I built my business um, at my home, the teen muscle car business, I was able to turn it over to one of the first, the first students I ever had, a gentleman who's been with me for 12 years, and who was able to capably run my business well. I took time off and wrote, because you can't, you can't write and write well unless you sit down and really just concentrate on it and take the time that needs to go through it. Um, once the book was finished, I'm not done writing yet. I'm, I'm still working on, on two other projects as we speak. Once the book was finished, I was looking around saying, I'm, I need something. I have to do something. And fate intervened. And this past, um, it's only been this past August, fate intervened and I ended up on the on the set of an ID discovery show called Unusual Suspects. And I was a background player in the dining room scene. Um, and I so enjoyed it because years and years before, um, up until the year of my accident, I had taken, I've been a performer. I played piano. I used to play in a band. I was, would play out in public solo by myself. In addition to that, I'd also done a lot of, not a lot, but I'd done some theater. I'd done, um, I'd been trained and had been, does some theater both in school and at universities and just out in the community. And it was something I really, really enjoyed. And mm-hmm. then the accident happened and life took over and I thought, well, those those days are gone. And I very rarely thought of it again. Um, and like I, like I started out saying, this past August, I ended up on a, on a TV set up in Danbury, Connecticut. And I met some wonderful, terrific people who okay. gave me ideas, gave me this, and gave me all kinds of encouragement. I went and went to another, and I'm now sitting in a hotel room in New York City, an hour away from an audition for um, a national campaign, a national commercial. Um, I'm working now, it was two or three days a week, now about three to four days a week um, in acting. I'm taking classes down here, and yet another, yet Joe has another chapter in his life, another pathway in his life. I, it's very exciting to to watch your post and oh you're onto this audition and that and you're doing the show. So I finally took a, ple- a peek and I watched the, the show you're on an unusual suspect episode season four <laughs> episode eight. There we go season four episode eight. You got to go check it out everybody. And there you were and just a handsome debonair uh, participant <laughs> in this uh, oh, in this restaurant. And, and, and there you were the one time, and then again and again and again, and you kind of captured, I know you're not supposed to, but you captured the focus of the scene, and uh, even though they had you out of focus at one point, they were including your, your profile quite a bit. It was fun watching you. And and it was so much fun doing it. That that was my very, very first experience ever in in this in this arena. Um, and I, I was so pleased with with how they how they had ended up doing the cuts. Of course, it was not a it was not a speaking role, but at the same token, it was just so much fun. Um, and I learned so much that day. And my table mate, a young woman named Cena Stockman, um, has actually become become one of my coaches down here. Um, she's been in the business for about a few, few years, and it's just so funny how the way life works, and if you're open to the changes and open to people that connections can be made and you just it, it's amazing what can happen it really is that's great uh it's going to be so much fun everybody i'm talking to joseph p genera 
and author of Arrested Youth, an actor, uh, and growing. You all need to just take a peek at what he has to offer and follow him. You will. You'll laugh some days, and other days you'll cry, and other days you'll feel the depth of human human experiences, like with your mom. And other days you'll realize, oh, just press on, press forward. You, you really do embrace life as it comes at you. I, I've noticed that about you. I've I've tried. It's it's. I'm. I hate to say it, I'm easily bored. Um, not, <laughs> not 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 in a negative way, but yeah. Mm. And I I think I think our maturity has a lot to do with that. Um, same with you and doing your radio show and your writings and everything else that you do. There's there's so much out there that can be grasped. So much out there that anyone could do. Um, and even even with changes, challenges in life, be it disability, be it health issues, be it problems with family, there's always something else out there. There's always a tomorrow, and it doesn't have to be, doesn't always have to be blah. There are days, and there have been days, a lot of days over the last 30 years where it just, it was really lousy. Um, I'll give you an example. Up, up until, or even while I was doing the writing, I'd been sick for 15 months with oh um, a severe a severe gastric disorder, um, and oh it was absolutely, absolutely horrendous. And except for doctor oh. appointments, I, I barely left the house. Um, it is where I got about half, half of my writing done at the time. But wow. I, I think what happened because of that, well, a couple of things happened. One, I lost 40 pounds, 30 mm. of which I didn't. 30 of which I didn't need anyway, so it, it wasn't a total loss. But okay. between between that and seeing a couple people, both close personal friends and also public figures, pass away at young ages, or relatively to the young age, I think I'm 52 now. Um, even people like Michael, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. I had a friend that I grew up with since childhood that suddenly passed away at, at 50. Um, my ex-wife's uh, sister passed away at 27. Mm. There are no guarantees of, right. of how long how long we're going to be here, and we are only here once, as far as I know. So between right. being sick and seeing these these fatalities, it was like it's not over yet. There's there is there are things out there I can do, and so I'm jumped in and with both feet, and I am <laughs> or both. Feet you are. You know, part of part of a life that's motivated, like at the Mushiati of Boredom, is that you feel like your life has meaningfulness and purpose, and and is going to affect uh, the well-being of other people, such as you deciding that you're going to volunteer your time, your efforts to help people do research, to help other individuals that need to move back into walking. But you have done a lot of other volunteer work, or reaching out to the community, and I wonder if you could describe some of that. At what what have been the very meaningful things you feel like you're so glad you could have contributed and probably wouldn't have if you hadn't come where you've come? Yep, I, you're absolutely right. One of the, one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of is I developed 12 years ago a program in Guilford called Team Muscle Car. And I actually, I actually trademarked our slogan for the shop, which is Teaching Teens one hot rod at a time. Beautiful. Trademark. <laughs> and what we've done, and it, again, it started out as something totally different. I was working working in a corporate world up in New York State uh, during the 90s, and very stressful and very high high energy. And I needed, I wanted an outlet. And I, I since my accident, I essentially stayed away from cars or working on cars pretty much since that time because we just did did. I just had no desire to, to go back into that realm. But um, in Arrested Youth, there's a chapter that describes how I lost a 1969 GTO because of circumstances in Boston and how horrendous things, things got. I lost my, my pride and joy, my GTO that I had restored way back when I was in high school. And throughout the years, I always, I always lamented that. So I think it was in 97, 1997, while I was still working full-time, I purchased the 69 GTO convertible and started working on it on weekends in my garage. And life being the way it was and is, um, at the same time, eBay started it, had just started up, Mm -hmm. 
And in the restoration of my car, I needed to purchase two other cars for parts for to get my car going. And while I was going along with this, my contract with my job ended, and I elected not to renew because I, I felt that life was changing and I wanted to um, be flexible with it. And so I, um, I finished restoring my car, and it came out absolutely beautiful. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. I got all kinds of trophies for it, and it was a lot of fun. And I ended up with a garage full of extra parts. So I started selling those on eBay. And then one of my neighbors saw my, my finished product. He says, I have one just like that. Do you want to restore it for me? And so I figured, oh, what the heck? It, it, it was fun, but my difficulty was because using the wheelchair, there were certain things that I just physically couldn't do because I couldn't mm-hmm. reach or I couldn't do whatever. So I went mm-hmm. to the high school and went to their shop department, and I said, do you have any young men who might be interested in helping out a couple of days a week? Just, just give me a hand doing, you know, doing what I can't do, and at the same time, they, they can learn about cars and things. And so that's, that's how it started, where it was me reaching out, because I, ne- I needed help. Um, and I continued doing that. And by the time I moved back to Guilford, I was working on cars full-time, most, mostly my own projects. And at the high school, the shop teacher I had when I was in junior high was now in charge of the shop department in Guilford High School. And I went, went to him with the same situation. I could use some help after school. But over the course of two years, it ended up where we developed Team Muscle Car. And the school now sends what they call at-risk kids. I hate labels. Um, the kids who might have difficulty working in the classroom, but they're extremely good with their hands. Um, mm-hmm. Kids who might have different situational difficulties. They send them to us. The kids get school credit for working with us. Um, they learn life lessons because in addition to working on the cars, they're exposed to me, uh, you know, with the wheelchair things. Um, and just for the last 12 years, they just evolved into something really, really neat, very interesting. It's a it's an unfunded program through the school, um, but it's it's just worked out really well. We've we've seen um, we've gone through we've worked with about 15 kids. And all but one of them I consider a success, a success being that the child went on to graduation and just made it, made made it through his career. So that was fun. fun. It's interesting. I know you hate labels, but if I can explain or suggest that these, these kids relative to the school world, the academic world, have a type of quote unquote disability, meaning they don't fit in. Uh, but they do fit in somewhere. What a horrible impact on one's self-esteem to not fit in and then feel like mm-hmm. you don't fit in because you're handicapped versus you're, you don't fit in because this isn't your domain. This isn't your strengths and exactly. your, your your position of expression. And here you yeah. give this to them. It's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've, we have seen, especially, we're getting kids between the ages of 15 to 18, and a lot of them were with us for two, two or three years each, and in some cases five years. And the, the growth we've seen was amazing, and most of it came from them realizing that they were more than what they, they thought they were. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that was the biggest thing of all, is building up the self-esteem and letting them see that, hey, I can do something. I can do something more than, than I expected myself or what others expected of myself. You you are there in the Big Apple right now, this very moment. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, and and there's I, Big Apple. <laughs> I can see that. You know, boy, New York has gone through a lot. We're, 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 we're seeing a lot about what happened to the storm, we're seeing them recover, what goes on in the subways, and what happened in 9-11. Mm-hmm. This is a city that could be, and I know you hate this word, it's a vile word, but a city that could have walked crippled. Do you feel when you are down there in New York that this is a city that's bound and determined for success regardless of what it's dished to? Oh, God, yes, especially, especially most recently following Hurricane Sandy. And the devastation that, that they experienced, and a lot of people haven't really seen it because they've concentrated on Staten Island, they've concentrated on New Jersey, how bad things were. There, were, there was a 30-block section of lower Manhattan from Battery Park on up about 30 blocks that was absolutely devastated. The subways were underwater for over a week. 
um, saltwater, yeah. no less, which is horrendous for the electronics. Um, yeah. there, were, there were large areas without power, and Con Ed actually drove in these big, huge trucks with generators just to get people plugged in. I mean, it never stops here. The, yeah. They, exactly like, like you said, they just get up and keep going and keep going. Um, it's a challenge. There are times it's a challenge for me working working down here. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, a lot of the buildings are extremely old and were designed, say, 75 years ago when people with wheelchairs just didn't get out very much at all. And so right. as such, there, there's a lot of practically insurmountable architectural barriers that because of the design of the building and its close proximity to sidewalk and things, it's just there's not, not very much at all they can do about it. Um, we've been very creative. I've gone into freight elevators. You know, we've, we've worked around it. Um, but it's, it's, again, another one of those challenges. But at the same token, we're bringing some awareness, and it, it works. It's working. But, yeah, now the, the city is tough um, in the resiliency, and we've seen it, we've seen it so many times um, with everything they've, they've been through. But it's, it's still, it still has a huge heart. It really is. I'm, I'm looking out now, and the fog is covering the, the tops of the skyscrapers, um, but all you see is activity everywhere. It's amazing. Also, and bustle and foraging ahead. One of your uh, Facebook posts, you say the longest, steepest ramp ever. This is 22 hours ago at Grand <laughs> Central. And, and, and I, I'm remembering when I was on crutches looking at every situation is how do I negotiate this moment is it possible? What am I going to do? I decided to go back to that, but it's really the only limited reference point I have to realizing that every every process requires contemplation. And here's a picture capturing that ramp. How often mm-hmm. during the course of a day do you have to resort to your own New York style's resiliency to <laughs> overcome a moment? Um, it's it depends where I am. If I'm sticking around my house, not too often. Um, if I get out mm. out there, quote unquote, um, quite a bit, at mm. quite a bit. But at the same token, like I was saying earlier, rather than what I've tried, or actually just what has evolved, is instead of seeing the obstacle, I I'm always looking for a way around the obstacle. And sometimes it drives some of my friends nuts. They're like, you know. How can you do that? Um, but the same token, that ramp, I, I did make work, work yesterday. I don't want to do it again very often because, <laughs> like, you, you can't you can't get the, the the feel for the angle of it, but it probably has to be a 20, 22-degree angle. And going up there, right. carrying, my yeah. luggage, carrying my luggage on my lap, it was not easy. Oh. Great, ex- great oh, exercise, okay. but I only want to do that maybe once or twice a week. Um, right. But there, there are different – there are – at the same token, there are different entrances and exits in and out of Grand Central, and had I gone out the right one, it would have been a lot easier. So it's a matter of finding finding ways around the obstacles. So, so this takes a lot of energy, Joseph. Finding ways around um, life's obstacles yeah. takes a lot of energy. Uh, yes, yes. There are times, and, and especially now, as I as I gracefully age, I hope um, there are nights where I just I just drop in the bed and go. Oh, I don't move for for eight ten hours. Yeah, it's it's it it, it takes some, yeah. Now I I don't know how careful you are with me belaboring this point, but I think that um, it, this is one of the things I feel is such an important thing for people to realize is that you feel like life should hand you easy, and it's so nice when it is. And please don't look a gift horse in the mouth. When it's easy, take it and go forward really move forward in your life when you have an opportunity to glide. But there are times when, and, and, and in the course of every single day, people may face very difficult things they have to overcome, and you have to figure out a way around it. And not to feel discouraged by that or hide or hibernate or become small or shrink. It, it, it you know, take a deep breath in and engage your mental abilities, your problem-solving capacities, your ability to Ask for handout help, and uh, and know how courageous and bold and emboldening you have to be in that moment. Every single moment, uh, it may be that way for some people, but definitely every day, everybody has that potential 
That's exactly. Okay, so how do we how do we build that consciousness? Well, unfortunately, you face it because of your circumstance on a regular basis. How do we build it in people who are just willing to go, oh, I'm not going to put too much effort into life, and they really need to? You know, I it's I think I think everybody has the capability in themselves to do things, to do things that they want, to do things that they need to do. There needs to be a way to ignite ignite that passion inside inside of each of us. Um, in my case, I I kind of didn't have a, a choice in some things that I had to do, which which kept me going in in a good way. Um, life's not easy for anyone by by any means. We 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 celebrate the, the brief moments of of happiness and good times, but but for the most part, we we all struggle. Yeah, whether it's with family issues, health issues, whatever the case may be. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing is if people could see that they are more than they think they are, um, that they have strength, that, that they have strengths inside that they may not know that they have, but they really do. And to be able to recognize that and be be strong in themselves and and grasp grasp the good there's we're not going to see good in life every day but if it's possible to see the good around us um whether it's family friends our own happiness listen to a good song sometimes that in itself is enough to change your day um and that you know i, I don't want to be left on these touchy feely oh you know the world is you know rosy place but but if it is if it is possible to see to see the cup as half full um mm-hmm. rather than half empty it it's it's a lot better it's not better that way i'd rather be i'd rather be in a positive mood than a negative mood, and I think there are times where especially when things are going hard where if we could see if we could force ourselves to to try and be happy or when we're talking to other people not to just lament and moan. I mean, yeah, we have to vent to everyone, but we don't have to vent all the time. Um mm-hmm. to to if if we force ourselves to be happy on the outside, eventually it seeps in. It seeps in and, and it could help it can help us us be a little happier on the inside too. I hope you know, Joseph, as we wind up here, that in, in my life you are, and I know it's not just my life, you are a person that reminds me that there's no stopping, there's no letting up. It's pressing on with as much joy, as much enthusiasm, excitement, as much finding of the solutions as is possible. One of our listeners just wrote, never give up. And that's exactly. what, yeah, and that's what that listener is. Spot on with what your message is. Joseph, how do we contact you? How do the people looking for a wonderful author, for a, a wonderful read, a, a great actor, how do we contact you? Or, or a motivational speaker for hire. Um, oh, yes, <laughs> sorry absolutely. For, sorry for the plug. Oh, um, the, the best way is, is probably through email, joegenera at gmail.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-E-R-A at gmail.com. Um, that's, the, that's the easiest way. And I, I check it regularly and I answer everything. It may take a little time depending on life circumstances, but I do answer everything, as, as you will know, as you've seen in the last two months. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're awesome. Yes, absolutely. And uh, they, they also can find your acting career on some websites. And I don't have that in front of me. I apologize, but how can they do that? Um, one way I do do have a Facebook page. My my personal Facebook page ended up becoming pretty much my acting blog, um, and I journal my activities on there. And that's Joseph P. Genera, um, and that's on Facebook. I could just look up that way, or you could, if you look up my name on the IMDb website, um, I'm up there as well. And my acting credits are starting to sh- my acting credits are starting to show on there as well. Parting, parting words to us, Joseph, as you get ready for your next uh, edition. As, as I'm trying to shake it off and breathe and uh, <laughs> shift, shift gears. Life is about shifting gears. How's that? Um, I'm on a roll. Uh, and that could be R-O-L-L, R-O-L-E. 
Um, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hope that when I press that New York City now has this great app. You press a button and accessible tax is supposed to be dispatched, and it works okay. about nine times out of ten. I'm hoping this is one of those nine times. But the biggest thing is we get one shot. We're, we're whether you're 20, 40, 60, if you don't know when it's going to end, keep going. It, it's fun. It can be one heck of a ride. It really can if if you can try. And I know I know it's hard. I've I've been down enough times myself. But if you can pick yourself, it's the ability to pick yourself up and and go on. And I'll tell you what, if I can close out. Um, there are two. There are two quotes I think I've shared with you in the past. Um, one yeah. is by Carl Baird, and it says, "Though no one can go back and make a brand new start, anyone can start from now and make a brand new ending." Whereas, say, ten years ago, you made a horrendous mistake in your life. Don't let that define the rest of your life. You can start today and do something different, so that when this does end, your ending is different. Um, and the second one, I actually borrowed the first two lines from the TV show Dead Zone with Michael Anthony Hall. Um, Reverend Purdy had said the first two lines, and it said, this may not be the life we would have chosen, but it is the life that has chosen us. And I expanded that to how we respond to the unexpected and unwanted changes determines how fulfilled we can be, how happy we can be, and who we really are. And I think I think that really sums wow. up. We 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 may plan. There's there's the old Jewish uh, proverb that says, "Man plans and God laughs." Um, mm-hmm. And not to disrespect God, but it's because we never know what tomorrow is going to bring, how things are going to change. But it's how we respond is going to determine how how we move on and how fulfilled we can be. And that's it. Wow, Joseph, thanks for being you, and thanks for being part of my <laughs> life. And- I hope that there will be many other people now that you'll be a part of their lives as well. Uh, good luck on your audition. We will talk Thank again, you very much. everybody. This is Dr. Carol Francis from Make Life Happen. We've been with Joseph P. Chanero, author of a book you must absolutely read when it comes out called The Rest of You. It's going to be coming out soon, not soon enough for me. And I wish you all well. Embrace life, move forward. Sorry about the hardships. you got to take them. Move with the flow. Take care. Thank you so much, Joseph. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.